0: Verses seven through nine. Matthew chapter fifteen verses seven through nine. I will be reading from the New King James Version. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Good to see all of you here this morning, and I'm thrilled and delighted to see you here, especially if you're visiting with us. I think if you're even a casual observer of the passing parade of life, you will agree that we have, in this high-tech world in which we live, lost touch with the basics. Let me give you an example. Some years ago, around Thanksgiving season, a teacher of a sixth-grade class was asking her class to do a simple exercise. She wanted them to appreciate where the food came from that was on their tables every night, especially the vegetables that they ate or that they perhaps turned their noses up at. But nonetheless, she asked the question, where did those vegetables come from? Hoping that that would point them in the direction of their parents who had worked for those things or more even fundamentally, the farmers who had produced those vegetables. And so when they wrote their answers on a piece of paper, the number one, by far, overriding response was Winn-Dixie. We have lost touch with the basics. There are those who think that in the field of education, we ought to get back to the basics of learning. The foundational studies of the three R's that many of us grew up with, reading, writing, and arithmetic, which were once strongly emphasized, have fallen on hard times. Studies show that those who score highest in the scholastic aptitude test are those who have a solid, strong foundation in the fundamentals of education. In the field of sports, there was a well-known coach, after a very dismal season, started the first practice of the next season with a tutorial. Perhaps some of you have seen it depicted in a movie. He held up a football and said to his team, gentlemen, this is a football. We need to get back to the basics. But long gone are the days of the classic textbooks such as McGuffey's Readers, Ray's Arithmetic, and the Blueback Speller. But some of these basic texts have been resurrected. From the forgotten graves, the dust has been brushed off of them, and they are now available again. In fact, John Westerhoff III, in his book entitled McGuffey and His Readers, said, and I'm quoting, now a century later, the cry back to McGuffey's readers is heard almost as frequently as back to the Bible. I suggest that in the spiritual realm, particularly in the field of gospel preaching, we have lost touch with the fundamentals, with the basics of our relationship with God. Few preachers spend much time anymore on the fundamentals, in defining doctrines, in stressing the plan of salvation, and most of the people to whom they preach would not like it if he did. So many today, like the Athenians that Paul describes in Acts the 17th chapter, spend their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing, and we are all the poor for it. We've gotten away from the basics of preaching the word, of being instant in season and out of season, of reproving, rebuking, and exhorting with all long suffering and teaching, as Paul told Timothy to do in Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. And while some in our fellowship loved for it to be that way, the sad reality is that the foundation of the church has eroded along with that neglect from our pulpits. Our challenge today, I'll remind you, as I try to do on a frequent basis, is not to be original. Our, our challenge is not to be fresh or innovative. Our challenge is to be biblical. And that's a good idea in education. It's absolutely essential in the presentation of God's message. Because as surely as a group of men get a hold of the thing, they'll complicate it. I think as we'll see in our lesson today, salvation is to be found in Christ. And it's quite simple when outlined in the Bible, God's revelation to lost humanity. But people have compounded and complicated God's simple plan by their own doctrines and by their own spins on scripture as per our text. Mark read a moment ago from Matthew chapter 15 verses 7 through 9. There Jesus is addressing the publicans and the scribes, in particular those Pharisees who were supposed to be the religious leaders of their day, but who had taken God's word and had relegated it to second place, right behind the traditions of their fathers. They were speaking the things that sounded true, but Jesus says your hearts are far from what you're teaching. You don't have in mind the basics that God would have you not only to be embracing in your own life but then communicating to the people who hear you speak on a weekly and monthly basis. What I'm saying is, in the multitude of theologies, man has departed from the basics of salvation. And so in our fundamental study this morning, I want us to spend just a few minutes talking about the five R's of salvation. And I think the fact that all of them began with R will help us to remember each of them, perhaps even without the benefit of taking notes. In this study, consider with me in the first place, Recognition. If you remember back on the day of Pentecost, recorded for us in Acts, the second chapter, the Bible says that the apostles stood up and began to speak in languages that they had never studied before. That, by its very nature, caught the attention of the crowd. A crowd began to gather as these apostles were preaching for the very first time the gospel of the risen Jesus Christ. Peter, in particular, seemed to have been the spokesman for the apostles that day. Now, all of them spoke but we have a highlight, we have a focus on Peter's message that day. When Peter got through speaking, the Bible says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, the they is the crowd who had gathered. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to the, Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? That's the first step that a person must take before asking the question, What must I do to be saved? That is the point of recognition. Until a person first recognizes the uncertainty of life, the certainty of death, and the fact that he or she will spend somewhere in eternity, he will never bother to ask the question, what do I need to do to get right with God? And so the first step in genuine repentance is that recognition, that realization of sin, and the recognition of a need for a Savior. Also, until and unless... A person recognizes that just any so-called generic religion will not do. That God demands more of us than just spiritual sincerity. He also will never ask that question, what must I do to be saved? One of the most difficult tasks that we face today, at least in my estimation, is bringing ourselves and others to the point where we recognize that we may not be where we think we are with God. Now that sometimes is a difficult awareness. It's been pointed out if someone turns the lights on you in the middle of the night in a dark bedroom, it takes a while for the eyes to adjust. In fact, it may be painful for a while. And sometimes that's true in this recognition process. In fact, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 7, 21 and following, the words of the Lord himself to that audience that he was speaking to that day, he said, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And many will say to me in that day, but Lord, have we not done many wonderful works? Have we not cast out demons? Have we not performed many mighty signs? And I will say unto them, depart from me, ye that work iniquity, I never knew you. Jesus was bringing that audience in a kind and considerate way to the point of recognition that they were not where they thought they were with God. They thought that because they had done certain things in the name of the Lord, that they were squared away in their relationship with the sovereign God of the universe. Jesus said, I want you to to think again. Recognition is the first R of salvation. The second one I would like for us to consider is the act or the state of repentance. In Luke chapter 13 and verse 3, Jesus again said, I tell you no, but except you repent, you shall in all like manner perish. And then in Acts the 26th chapter, when when Paul is speaking to King Agrippa, The Bible says there in verses 19 and 20 of Acts 26, Paul said, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. Paul said that they not only need to repent, But in doing so, they will, by the very nature of the definition of repentance, turn to God and also demonstrate that repentance by how they live from that point forward. Doing works befitting repentance. Obviously, a person is not going to repent if they don't know what it is. And so we need to allow the Bible to define what repentance means. The definition of repentance depends on who you ask. I'm suggesting that the definition that we see in God's word so often differs from what you might hear on TV. Repentance is more than just remorse. It's more than just sorrow for wrongs that we've done. It's more even than just shame or guilt, though it certainly involves all three of those things. Fundamentally, watch this carefully. Fundamentally, repentance is a change of mind that seeks to make amends for wrongs that have been committed, And then a resulting in a change of life. A change of mind that results in a change of life. When a person repents, the Bible says there are two things that take place in his or her her heart. First of all, there is a genuine sorrow for sin. Now repentance and sorrow for sin are not the same thing. But repentance involves sorrow for sin. That's where it starts that's where it finds its genesis in our hearts and in our souls. I know that because the Bible tells me so. In the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul said in chapter 7 and verse 10, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Paul says then there's two kinds of sorrow. There's a sorrow of the world And then there's a sorrow that leads to repentance. Not, It isn't the same thing as repentance, but it will lead to repentance and then bring about salvation. If you allow it to germinate and formulate and cultivate in your heart. Second, the Bible teaches that a person will make a change in the direction of his or her life. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 9. Paul is opening his letter to the Thessalonian Christians and he's describing how that some of those Christians were at one time themselves worshippers of pagan gods. They were idolaters. Notice how he commends them and also gives us some vital information in the same verse. First Thessalonians one and verse nine. Here's the commendation: how that you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You want a biblical definition of what repentance is? right there it is. They weren't just sorry for what they'd been doing and worshiping these pagan gods. The Bible says that they turn from worshiping those gods to turn and serve the living and true God. That's repentance not just a change of mind, but also resulting in a change of life. And I want to remind you and emphasize that repentance is God's requirement for salvation. But man has come along, complicated the matter by changing the very meaning of it, or in some cases, leaving it out altogether. But that's the second R of salvation. First, there must be recognition of the reality of sin in our lives. Secondly, there must be sincere repentance. And thirdly, There needs to be remission of that sin. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, during that Passover feast when Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper, helping those disciples to see how that this was going to be something that they would do for the rest of humanity, for the rest of the Christian era, he said in verse 28, for this is, as he handed them the cup, this is my blood of the New testament, which was shed for many for the remission of, Of sins. And then on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, verse 38, right after in verse 37, when those people there said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? That is, how do we rectify this situation? We agree that we're responsible for the death of the Messiah. How do we get right with God? Peter's response was, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. There are several grave misunderstandings as to how a person's sins are remitted by the blood of Jesus Christ. I want to clear those up, if I can, in just a few few minutes this morning. It's thought by some, that is remission of sins, is thought by some to be a change of heart that is brought upon us in almost a passive sort of way. That is that the Holy Spirit must act directly and operate upon the hearts of lost people to bring them to the point where their sins are remitted. My question is, is that what the Bible actually teaches? People are then taught to examine their own feelings as evidence that the remission of their sins have taken place. In fact, you might hear that language a lot more in past generations than you do today. But I can remember a time when people were asked, Are you saved? How do you know? Because I feel it right here. Our feelings were the primary testimony to dictate whether or not we were in a right relationship with God or not. We can certainly see that to a person who has that idea of remission, that it would be absurd to think that baptism has any connection at all to the forgiveness of sins. But again, my challenge and my ambition this morning is not to get you to agree with me, but to get both of us to agree with God. What does God's word say on that subject? When people have a change of heart, they often believe that the remission of sins has taken place, as we just mentioned, Because they feel good. I feel relief. I feel forgiveness. And yet in the pages of the New Testament, remission of sins is distinguished from a change of heart. That's necessary to appreciate that difference and that dichotomy. The change of heart takes place when a person turns from sin in repentance as we've just seen. The love of sin is removed. Sorrow for sin intervenes. And a love of the truth begins to take over in that person's heart. What then is remission of sin? The word remit literally means to release from bondage or imprisonment. From heaven's standpoint, it means letting our sins go as if they had never been committed. Now notice, that's God's promise to lost humanity. That is, if our sins will be forgiven and remitted by the blood of Jesus Christ, God says, I promise you that I will not hold those against you anymore forever. I will wipe those sins from my book of records, and you will never have to worry about double jeopardy. You'll never have to worry about standing accountable for those sins again. And when you think about it, what a wonderful blessing that is to know that that's predicated by God's tender mercies and by his amazing grace. It means that our sins are forgiven. Again, wiped from God's book of record. I think one of the greatest passages in all the Bible which, by the way, is repeated in, in the New Testament from the Old. But on the New Testament side of things, it's found in Hebrews 8 and verse 12. And it constitutes a promise from God. And here's what he says. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Let me tell you, folks, if you're a New Testament Christian today and you have problems sleeping, quote that verse in your mind and in your heart a few times, and I think it will help you rest. There is blessed assurance in knowing that our God has said about our sin that will keep us out of eternity. Your sins and iniquities, well, I'll remember no more. I'm, not, I'm going to act as if they've never happened. The Bible says remission takes place when we complete our obedience to God in the transitional step of baptism. That's why in the book of Galatians and a number of other places, the Bible talks about us being baptized into Christ. Galatians 3 and verse 27 as well as other places. In Mark 16, 16, the Lord said to his disciples when he gave them the great commission, Go preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Those are the two prerequisites for a person having his sins remitted. In Acts two thirty-eight, as we've just seen, Peter said, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for with a view toward the remission of your sins. In 1 Peter 3, verse 21, Peter said, The like figure whereinto baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience before God. Remission or forgiveness takes place in the mind and the heart of the one who's doing the forgiving. In this case, that means Jehovah God himself. And then it is communicated to those who are obedient to his word, the Bible. In other words, our good feelings are no proof of forgiveness. Pardon from sin is obtained in meeting the conditions that God has clearly and simply given to each of us. And we know that baptism is involved because God's word says so. The fourth R that I want us to consider is a very natural response to the remission or forgiveness of our sins. And it's rejoicing. Listen to what the Bible says on that subject. When Philip taught the truth to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts the 8th chapter, The Bible said that he opened his mouth at that scripture, Isaiah 53, that the eunuch happened to be reading as he was riding along in his chariot that day and preached unto him Jesus. What that entailed, we don't know because the Bible doesn't specify. But we do know that at some point they had to have talked about baptism because verse 34 says this, So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. And now when they had come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he, that is the eunuch, went on his way rejoicing. If you were to have seen that man around the next curve and said, why are you smiling? Why are you rejoicing so? What What have you got to be happy about? That eunuch, I'm sure, would have been happy to have told you that it was because all of his sins had been forgiven. His sins had been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. When a person you see is in a right relationship with God, he is reconciled. That means he is brought back into God's favor. It's my understanding that the word "reconciled" literally means to make friends again. Ostracized and alienated from God by our sin, now we are reconciled to the God who made us. That breach that separated man from God has been broken down. Isaiah reminds us in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, that God's hand is not shortened that he cannot save. His ear is not dull that he cannot hear. But it is our iniquities that have separated between us and our God and our sins that have hidden his face from us. All of those sins are no longer a problem. That wall that separates us from a holy God has been broken down by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. How does that happen? Let Paul speak for himself. Romans 5 verse 10, for if when we were enemies, there we were alienated enemies from God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we will be saved by his life. Over in 2 Corinthians 5, in his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul discusses the concept of reconciliation further. Let me say three simple things about that we'll be through. He first gives the basis for it. Again, this is 2 Corinthians 5 in verse 15. The basis for our reconciliation is in Christ. We have no hope except in Christ. Every spiritual blessing comes to us in Christ. Paul said Ephesians 1 verse 3. Secondly, he then gives the effects of it. That is of our reconciliation to God's side. And that is verse 17. He says, anyone who is in Christ now is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, whether the world knows it or not, that's what everybody is looking for. An opportunity and an ability to be able to start life all over again with a fresh slate. And folks, I'm telling you, we can do that because of the blood of the lamb. And then in verse 19, he gives the means of it. He said, it is by the word of reconciliation that this process takes place. Nobody ever came to God without hearing the salvation word, without hearing the gospel message. That was true from the day of Pentecost forward. It's still true in 2018. We must hear the message of salvation, the good news of the gospel, respond appropriately and positively to it. And then we can know the wonder and the power of reconciliation I think we'll all agree that the five R's of salvation are really quite simple. But they all point to yet one more R that I want to mention quickly. And that's redemption. We sing those songs. We sing Redemption sweet song. And a lot of other songs in our book that are about the subject, the theme of redemption. No wonder. If you're a child of God tonight, you can pillow your head knowing that you are in a right relationship with the God of heaven who made us who sent his son to die for us and someday will say, well done, good and faithful servant. This is the most basic and important of all subjects simply because it has to do with the salvation of our eternal souls. My question for you this morning is, have you been washed in the blood of the lamb? There's a, there's a song that we sometimes sing that asks this question. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Won't you avail yourselves of that power this morning while we stand and while we sing. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed In the blood, in the soul, cleansing blood of the Lamb.